we had a little show and tell with Tony uh, this morning, right? We uh, we handed him a staff, not because he actually will need that uh, to corral anybody uh, in his future ministry, but to to indicate to him the nature of the calling that he's taking on. Uh, one with the Word and one with uh, shepherding people. And uh, it's one of my favorite things to do, one of my favorite things to give people is uh, are those kinds of, of physical reminders, tangible things they can hold in their hands and look at and remember what it is that they are there to do. Uh, we show him these things, we give him these things, and we tell him, this is your ministry, this is your calling, to carry the word out into a world that is deeply, deeply in need of the word, amen? And uh, these things are decorations in one sense, but they're also very practical, tangible reminders of the realities that are laid on his life. Why am I bringing all this up? Because I want to tell you this. That the point of the scripture that we're looking at today in the book of Titus really is um, it's show and tell. Uh, just like when we were in kindergarten. Remember graduation Sunday? It's graduation Sunday today, but some of you may remember back in kindergarten when they would have show and tell. And you would bring in your thing and you would be like, this is my pet lizard, Leonard, or whatever, right? And or this is my bunny rabbit, or this is you know. It was always great when somebody would bring in a pet, especially when it got loose. That was my favorite, right? Um, <laughs> and then and everybody has to catch the bunny or whatever around the classroom. Um, and you know, you would uh, you bring in some object or some story, right? And the point of the scripture here that we're looking at this morning in Titus is this idea. That just like we give objects, objects that have a, a practical utility to the people here on graduation Sunday, we are also uh, engaged with our lives in show and tell. As it relates to the Christian life, it's not just what comes out of your mouth that's important, it's also the way that you live that is important. And the integrity of your life is is connected to how you not only speak the word, but how you live it out. The Christian life is a process of show and tell. And uh, so I want to look with you, if you have uh, your Bible, I want to be over in um, the book of Titus. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 10. And if you have your Bible, I'd love to have you stand with us if you're able as I read what the, what the Lord says to us. This is what the Word of God says. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. 
show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Unservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, uh, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray. Father, our desire is to adorn the teaching that we have received with faithfulness, with becoming people of good character, people who reflect the fact that we belong to and have been with Jesus. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us in a powerful way that we might not only tell the wonderful story, the wonderful good news of Jesus Christ crucified and raised, but that we might show it true in the way that we live. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you look at verse 1, you'll see it's a command to Titus, but it's a command that applies to us as well. Uh, as you grow in the Lord, you are responsible to make disciples to engage in teaching people what it means to know Jesus and to follow Him. The calling to make disciples is laid on every believer's life. And so, what you teach is of vital significance. Amen? And so, uh, so what it says here is, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, the word sound there is used in other contexts that can be translated with this word, healthy. With what is healthy for people. Uh, there are forms of teaching that you can engage in or that you can listen to that yield unhealthy, ungodly results in people's lives and have the effect of making people further away from God rather than drawing them closer to Him. That this is absolutely the case. There's all kinds of stuff that is out there that people believe that when they believe it has the effect of moving people further away from God. And, and a lot of times, particularly in our culture, which prides itself on the only absolute value that we hold as one of tolerance, what we say to one another is, well, you know, it's just their interpretation. It's a little different take on it. Uh, you know, everybody's kind of a little bit right, a little bit wrong, but that's not Jesus' view at all. Jesus' view is this, that there is truth and there is error. And it matters intensely and completely which side of the line you fall on. And that you need to teach that which accords with what is true that which lines up and is plumb and level with God's Word. Because it is the only thing that makes people spiritually healthy. But you have to be careful how you teach, what you disciple people into, that they might be sound and healthy as a result. Sound teaching involves teaching people uh, sound living, moreover, that underlines and verifies the truth of what they're taught. Because in your Bible, truth and life are inseparable things. How you live 
is, is a reflection of what you ultimately believe. Your, in other words, your, your practical theology, how you live, is a reflection of your intellectual theology, what you think. What you, what you really believe always comes out. It may take a little time, but it always shows up in how you live. And so verses 2-8 to eight are given to us to point out the way that if we have received sound teaching and believed it, how that ought to show up in our lives. And, and Paul addresses through to Titus each group of, of people in the church and what they need to be taught. And the first group that are addressed are older men. Older means older than Titus, who is probably a younger guy. Maybe he's in his 20s or, or 30s. And Titus is told to teach these men to exhibit several characteristics. And the first one is being sober Minded. Being sober minded means that you are a person of good judgment, that you are clear headed in your ability to think things through. You don't just react or go off half cocked. Uh, you don't decide on impulse. You stop and reflect and consider carefully what to do. And the second in the list is dignified, which has to do with the things that you speak and think about uh, being noble and good instead of tawdry or cheap or low. Third is the, the word self-control. Now, self-control is going to throw, show up. It's the only term that shows up in instructions to all four groups of people. Did you notice that? Maybe you didn't as I read, but it shows up four times in this passage once to every group of people. The word self-control is not just a fruit of the Spirit. It's also a word which, is, which in most contexts in your Bible has a sexual connotation. And that is, it is a word that has to do with what you do with your body and how you think about uh, these types of areas of life. Are you a person who is ruled by your impulses, your passion, your desires? Uh, you aren't a slave to your passion if you're self-controlled. You rule your body in holiness. And what you do with your body and what you allow your mind to dwell on and your eyes to see. This, this characteristic is something that must Characterize every person who is a believer. That you are self-controlled. That you discipline your body and its desires. The, the next uh, one in the list is, um, is sound in, and there's three things. Faith, love, and steadfastness. They're all tightly related to one another. Faith is exactly what it sounds like. Belief in Jesus and what the Bible says is true, and building your life on those truths. That's being sound in faith. Love is related because when your love for Jesus is genuine, it naturally produces both love for God and love for other people as a result. How could it not, after all? Because if we are unconditionally loved by God, how can 
we not then become people of love that just pours out of us, that overflows from us. And you know, we've been unconditionally loved despite being undeserving. And that is the kind of thing that ought to flow out of us toward other unworthy people too. And finally, steadfastness is the characteristic of doing all of these things over the long haul. Over the long haul. I don't know if you've ever been to a track meet or to a cross-country race or, or maybe a triathlon or whatever. You know, there are people who come out of the blocks or off the starting line like their hair is on fire and the hind end is catching. And they are just, they are just lit and going, right? And they make it about 100 yards and then they're like, and they're gassed, right? And there's a long race ahead. Some Christians run exactly the same way. That boy, they come out of the blocks. They come, they come to Christ and it's boy, it's transformative for about 10 minutes. Right? And then you're like, what happened to that? Steadfastness is, I'm going to walk with Jesus. I'm going to be self-controlled and sober-minded and dignified, a person of integrity and faith and love over the long haul. Because the race is long and it doesn't end until you cross the finish line and meet Jesus. Stead fast in faith. Genuine faith and love are persevering things. They do not end in the face of adversity. So bottom line, the older men need to be godly guys, setting an example for everyone younger. Verse 3, you get older women that are addressed, and they're taught to be first reverent in behavior. Now, this, this means essentially this, that older women should act like what they are, the holy women of God. They are the holy women of God. They belong to Him. And they should walk in that. Second, we see that older women should not be slanderers. Uh, by the way, this word is also used, is most commonly used elsewhere. The word slanderer is most commonly used elsewhere in your Bible of Satan. So, older women should not be those who speak evil of other people. Now, I'm probably going to get myself in trouble here. But have y'all ever been in a church where the older women have a gossip circle? And they just kind of sit around and rah, 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 to each other about other people? Paul tells Titus, teach the older women not to do that. To do that is to take on one of the primary names for Satan himself. Don't do that. It's not harmless. It's not harmless. It's evil. Teach the older women not to be a slanderer. Next, they aren't to be slaves to much wine. 
God's women must not be addicts. God sent His Son to deliver us from slavery to all kinds of sin and addiction of one and an addiction to wine is just one type, right? So, so it's not like, well, I am not, I'm not a drunk, but I am, I am a drug addict, so I guess I'm in the clear. No, um, this verse applies to all kinds of addiction. By the way, if you are an addict of some type, I'm talking about anything. I'm talking about an eating disorder. I'm talking about uh, drugs, I'm talking about alcohol, I'm talking about some kind of sexual addiction. We want to help you get free from that. Jesus died on the cross to set you free, and we want to help you to be free. All it takes is one step of being honest enough to admit where you are. And we will take 20 steps toward you to help you. But you have to be willing to admit to where you are. Some of you are probably familiar with the, you know, I don't know, if this is a weird culture time that we live in. But you've probably seen all the mommy needs her wine uh, knickknacks and memes and whatever, you know, like, I have three kids, so I have a big glass of wine every day, you know. There's something deeply unhealthy about that. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a drink. I am saying it's wrong to need one. And if you need one, that'd be the one time not to have one. And to rely on that instead of rely on the Lord. There's no reason as a sister in Christ to live enslaved to this kind of stuff. Uh, if you keep continue reading in verse 3 to 5, you'll also see that older women are given a significant responsibility, a teaching responsibility to teach the younger women. And this is beautiful, and it's also necessary. Remember that, that Titus is written to a younger single man, uh, Pastor Titus. So he is less than ideally suited to give the younger women instruction on how to live their life how to, how to be successful as a godly young wife, etc., right? But do you know who is perfectly suited for that role? By the way, I'm not. I'm an older married dude. I'm also not ideally suited to instruct younger women in these things. But who is are the older women. And by the way, if you are older than me, you fit the category. Okay, if you are out of your 20s, you also fit the category, right? Um, you are a person with some years of experience of walking with the Lord. Many of you have been married a long time. And the older women are, giving, are given this responsibility to carry on a teaching role within the church with the younger women. They're first of all to teach what is good. Uh, this is a cool word, by the way. What is good? To teach what is good? It's a, it's a unique word. It's the only time in all of Greek literature that this word uh, appears. And there's, so there's a lot of speculation among scholars that Paul invented this word for this context. And it's the word philagathos. Okay, now you don't need to know that, but you need to understand this. 
is that the word philos or phileo is a word for love and agathos is good. And he mashed together to teach younger women to love what is good. Love what is good. In addition to that, verse 4 fills that in a little more. To train the younger women how to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. This is a beautiful list. Uh, and, but it is a compelling set of life skills that don't come naturally to anyone. So what does it look like to love your husband and kids? How do you do that? You know, we get married and we think that it's going to be easy to love the person we married, but we figure out that actually that's when learning to love them really begins. What does it look like to love the kids that you have when they drive you crazy? On the regular, or maybe on the daily, right? Um, where you are just done at the end of the day. How do you love your kids in those days? An older woman is someone you should be able to call and ask, how do I do this? Help me. How does a woman remain sexually faithful if she's married and chaste if she's not? The temptations for women in this area often look different than for men, but an older woman can help you walk through that. Maybe she did everything right and therefore she can point you that direction. Maybe she messed up this area royally and she can say, well, here's all the ways I have failed and, uh, and repented of and you need to do it differently than I did. But either way, an older woman is to teach how to remain sexually faithful to your husband and chaste if you're single. The words working at home aren't necessarily an indication of location as they are of are, are one of focus. In other words, it's not teaching you that a woman cannot have a job outside the house, but it does mean that she has responsibilities at home and that those matter a lot. If, if you're a woman and you have great success in your job and your kids are a mess and your marriage is a mess, you will not feel successful in life. An older woman is to teach you how to work at home on these important, vital areas of life. Also, um, the, word, the word listed next is the word kind. You see that? There are no prizes given for being the sharpest, most quick-tempered, and harsh woman around. Finally, there's a bit about submissive to their own husbands, meaning that you're to treat your husband with honor and willingly follow his lead. How do you do that? As a pastor, I'm not really sure how you do that. I've never had to submit to a husband because I am one. But an older woman ought to be able to teach you how to do that. Notice to all of the motivation behind all of this. 
that the word of God may not be reviled. The whole idea is that all of this is an outgrowth of faith in Christ. That if we believe in Jesus, then we become these kinds of people as good witnesses to others uh, rather than a warning to them against following Christ. Amen? We want to be a witness, not a warning when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. People shouldn't look at us and go, well, gosh, if that's what becoming a Christian looks like, I don't think I want to be one of those. Right? No, we want to be a shining light, an example. Now, younger men only get one line. I don't know why that is, but they get the strongest possible command in all of these. He says, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's the fourth time this word shows up. The word urge is the strongest of the verbs that are used here. And it points to the need for repeatedly, strongly teaching the young guys how to control themselves, especially as it relates to their sexuality. Could that be a problem for young men? Yes, that can be a problem. Right? I remember when, when I was a, a, a younger man, I was basically a testosterone molecule with feet. Right, and uh, and I did not know how to control any of this stuff that was going on in my mind and heart and body. And no one in our church was ever taking me alongside and saying, you know, here's what God has designed sexuality to look like, and here's how it's supposed to go. And this is, um, you know, this is really. Uh, you know, an important area of life that you need to figure out. I was more or less told, you know, read your Bible and pray about it, right? Uh, which was good advice, but not real specific. And I spent, as many of you know, years of my early life uh, as an addict to stuff that I should never have gotten into because I didn't learn how to control my body in holiness and honor, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Right? Young men, let me just tell you this, as somebody who has been there, gotten the scars, got a t-shirt for this he does not want. Okay? You have got to learn how to do this. If you want help, I will help you. Show up in my office and say, hey, remember when you were talking about younger men? Yeah, I'm one of those. I need to talk. Okay? Or call me up, send me a text or whatever and say, can we meet for coffee? I'll meet you. Younger men, God has a holy purpose for you and a beautiful gift to give you. A beautiful gift to give you if you will learn how to control your body and its desires. Let everyone among you learn to possess his vessel in holiness and honor. Holiness and honor is the charge for all of us. But especially to younger men and we want to help you do that.
The Holy Spirit has to rule our hearts, guys. Amen? Amen. Now, it's interesting to note, too, that a pastor who is teaching everybody else these things is not left out. If you look at verses 7 to 8, and I think that's beautiful, by the way. That's like, you're not exempt. So let me give you some, some specific instruction, you pastor. Here's what, it, here's what it says. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that everyone... Uh, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The idea here is for us pastors and elders is that we should set the example for everything we do and what we teach and how we do it so that people opposed to us have no right to criticize. To our shame, many times in recent years, church leaders have been subject to a lot of justified criticism about these things. Amen? Seems like about every other week you're reading one of those newspaper articles you don't want to read about another big church leader who's blown up his life and his church because of the lack of these things. But the Gospel is meant to change us and we who teach most of all and that is what me and the other elders here are all striving for. And we need your help, and we need your encouragement, and your prayers, and occasionally, we may even need your gentle correction, if necessary. If we are not living up to these things, let us know. Now, the last couple verses in this section are addressed to slaves specifically. These are men and women and children in inherently unjust situations, and Paul recognizes that fact. So how does the gospel transform a person's behavior toward their master? This is wild stuff to me. Given what Paul recognizes to be an unjust situation, he says, be submissive, well-pleasing, not argumentative or stealing from the master, but showing all good faith. In other words, the Christian slave should be a model of a good and faithful servant to their earthly master because ultimately they belong not to some earthly ruler, but to Jesus, the Master and the King of Kings. Is that fair? No. It's not. But it's right. And on top of that, it adorns the truth of God our Savior. In other words, their conduct is a witness to the truth of the Gospel. If you want to know that the gospel is true, how do you know it when somebody acts contrary to how it would be normal for them to act, how it would be expected for them to act in an unjust situation? How do you act? If you act like a Christian, that creates an opening for the gospel. Uh, and this really is the point of this whole section of Scripture. As followers of Jesus Christ who have been saved from sin and death and hell by faith in Jesus' death and for our sins on the cross and His resurrection from the dead to give us new life, we know that the resurrection power by which we are saved ought to be showing up in our conduct as well as our beliefs. Christianity is not merely an intellectual exercise. It is show and tell. Amen? Just like kindergarten. Show and tell. 
It's not enough to hold up your Bible and say, yes, I'm a Christian. Right? It's not enough even to merely speak the words of the Gospel, as important as that is. It ought to be underlined and highlighted and clarified and circled and, and have stars shooting out of it as far as your life goes, adorning the truth of the Gospel. That we not only hold to the truth and teach the truth to one another, we show it to a watching world and we demonstrate it to each other how the Gospel is lived out in every part of life. That even in the most intimate, most secret, uh, most private parts of our life, that even there, Jesus transforms every part of us. So, if you're an older man like me, ask yourself this, how am I doing at show and tell? Am I sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, steadfastness? Am I an example of godliness who shows everyone else how to live like Christ? If you're an older woman, are you reverent, acting like one of the holy women of God? Are you not a slanderer? Are you not a slave to any addictive substance, but a teacher of what is good. By the time you're an older woman in the faith, you should be able to and engaged in teaching younger women how to live the Christian life in ways that are specific to Christian womanhood. Are you doing that? You have younger women you're mentoring and discipling? If not, we want to help you do that. Younger women, are you learning how to love your husband and children if you have them? If you uh, Are you self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to your husband if you have one? If you're single, are you self-controlled, pure, kind, and willing to submit to authority? Uh, those are all still virtues worthy of cultivation regardless of whether or not you get married. Marriage is not the most important thing in life. It's a good thing. It's a blessing if you get married. But the most important thing in your life is that you live as a follower of Jesus Christ. And you can do that regardless of the context to which God has called you. Younger men, I'll say this again, you know how to control your body and your mind. This is where the battle for godliness is won and lost. Right here. That you can control your body and your mind. Victory and self-control is not only possible, it is essential for us as men. So by the Holy Spirit's power, guys, you have to submit yourself to Jesus in all of these areas. Guys in leadership, and here I ask myself again, are you a model in all respects of living the Christian life and doing good works? Does your teaching exhibit integrity, dignity, and sound speech? Are you a good example to the world outside. And last of all, to all of us. When you confront unjust circumstances, how do you respond? Maybe you were called to love your spouse and you don't even like them right now. And you're like, well, that's unjust that I should have to still demonstrate love and forgiveness and grace to them when they've been mean to me. 
That's true. How are you going to respond to unjust circumstances? Maybe your boss is unkind to you. Demanding. Asked a lot. And doesn't seem to notice when you go above and beyond. Is that just? No. How are you going to respond anyway? Are you going to respond with honor, integrity, and respect? Doing what is right, even when what's being done to you is wrong? Because remember, we follow the one who prayed from the cross while he was dying at the hands of wicked people. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Was his response then a testimony of the truth of his message and his claims to be God? Absolutely. We who are his followers are asked to do nothing less to imitate Him by the Spirit's power, and in so doing, exhibit the supernatural transforming power of the Gospel on our lives to other people. Amen? Alright. I'm done. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, these things are hard. And today is a celebration day. It's a day when when we have graduates from seminary, graduates from college, graduates from high school, graduates from eighth grade, people moving into new stages of their life. And Father, we celebrate with them uh, the fact that you have brought them this far in the journey. But Father, for all of us, there are additional stages to life. And whatever stage we're in, Father, you have called us to be faithful and to walk as examples of the transforming of the gospel in that stage of life. And Father, I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. Whether our circumstances are unjust, uh, whether we're older or younger, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we're leaders or followers, wherever we are, Father, help us to exhibit the fact in daily life and speech and thought and conduct in every respect, Father, help us to be a living witness to the fact that we belong to Jesus and we live like Him. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.